What's my most favorite thing to do? To talk. Every week I'll do just that. We'll feature national and international movers and shakers, experts in their fields, and all-around interesting people with something more than great to say. No holds barred. We'll tackle every topic imaginable, especially for women over 40. This is Conversations with Sima. Please stay tuned. Today we'll be talking with Deborah Tannen, the acclaimed author of You Just Don't Understand, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for nearly four years. The New York Times bestseller on mother-daughter communication, You're Wearing That, I Only Say This Because I Love You, and many other books. Her latest book is called You're the Only One I Can Tell, Inside the Language of Women's Friendships. She is a professor of linguistics at Georgetown University and appears frequently on national television and radio. Deborah lives with her husband in the Washington, D.C. area. So welcome, Deborah. Hi, so nice to talk to you. So nice to talk to you. So I note that you call yourself a linguist and that your training is in a field called interactional sociolinguistics. Tell the listener a little bit about what that training or education is and what that means. Linguistics is the study of language, and sociolinguistics is the study of all the things that affect how we use language and how we use it in our everyday lives. In other words, the social interactions and the effect of language on that. Tracing back to that very first book that you mentioned, You Just Don't Understand, which is about women and men, and one even before that, which was, that's not what I meant. My goal has been to raise awareness that sometimes we get impressions that we attribute to people's intentions, to their abilities, and it really could just be about ways of speaking. People sometimes think I'm a psychologist because I talk so much about human relationships, but I always try to approach it through use of language. So I can just give you the most basic example, feeling that somebody interrupted you, for example, so accusations. You don't give me a chance to talk. You're not listening to me. You only hear yourself talk. That, believe it or not, could just be a difference in a tiny little linguistic phenomenon When we talk, we have to have some sense of judging when the other person's done, and it's our turn to begin, and part of the way we do that is listening for a pause, but how much pause signals I'm done. We know that that varies very much by geography, by culture, by age, all kinds of influences. So if you talk to someone who's expecting a slightly longer pause than you do, you're going to think they're done when they're not. And so you start to speak. You think you're just being a good sport, filling the conversational space as a good person would, and they think they've been interrupted. So that's just a small example of how we sometimes draw conclusions about people's intentions, and it really has only to do with linguistics. And can you tell the listener why this appeals to you? What was the fascination or passion for this? I started grad school in linguistics when I was 30. So I had done quite a few things before that. I was an English major in college. I had a master's degree in English literature. So I always loved words. I always loved language. I was teaching remedial writing and freshman composition. I had lived in Greece for a number of years. And I was beginning to realize that I was kind of bored. I wanted to do something new. I really wasn't thinking so much about a career. I was just thinking how I would spend the next few years. And I wanted to be a student again. I thought about English literature, but 
somehow the word linguistics fascinated me. I went to a linguistic institute at the University of Michigan, and I was so fortunate that just that summer, it was what we would now call sociolinguistics. It was called language in context. And it was like a whole world opened up to me. I could combine my interest in people, my concern with helping people in the real world, understanding myself and others, but I could do it through language. Does this mean that on a daily basis, almost like a psychic would be looking at other people and know more about them than what they themselves might know, on a daily basis, if you're talking with people, does the language alone give you immediate clues about who they are? (laughs) Um, I think we all are always getting clues about who people are. And we get it from how they look, from how they dress, and from how they talk, and unfortunately, often assumptions that we have about groups we see them as being members of. Mm-hmm. Um, I am particularly attuned to signals about people from ways of talking, but I'm probably more likely to just notice and observe and be fascinated and amused. I think it's a little bit like being a writer, and, and I do, in a way, consider myself a writer. I was this literary type in high school and college, you know, editor of the literary magazine. Um, but I think uh, just as as writers or novelists, fiction writers, are always observing people and thinking, gee, that's interesting, I might use that. Uh, it's kind of similar. I, I observe how people use language and sometimes zero in on examples. Getting back to the field of interactional sociolinguistics, in reading your book, You're the Only One I Can Tell, I saw a lot of sociology behind it. I read the terms that I am most familiar with in my own sociology classes in college, like message and made a message, a linguistic mechanisms. Tell me a little bit more about that sociological aspect of this work. Sociological, also anthropological. So these terms, message and meta-message, become really important. They trace to the anthropologist Gregory Bateson. He was married to the anthropologist Margaret Mead. I love to identify a man by telling you who his wife was. So Gregory (laughs) Bateson used message and meta-message as general terms for how people communicate meaning. Uh, The message might be the meaning of the words themselves. The meta-message is how you mean those words. So just something very simple. Someone says, uh, wow. Is it, wow, that was really great, or wow, I'm underwhelmed. That's just a tiny example, but everything we say needs to have that meta message so that we know how the person means it and, and what it says about the relationship that they're using these words in this way in this, at this time. So just a really, and this is something that goes through all the works I've written, um, often we end up arguing about the words that were spoken, but it's really the meta-messages that we're having an emotional reaction to. But just a, a tiny little example from a texting exchange. Show two friends, one texts the other, uh, how about if we go running a little bit later than we had said, uh, and the second one replies, I guess so, okay. Those little words, I guess so, okay, to the first friend, that signals reluctance. I'm accommodating. It isn't really what I want. And and women in particular, we're very sensitive, you might say, concerned that we not come across as demanding, that we not impose on our friends or family too much. And so the first one said, oh, no, no, I'm really not as 
inflexible as it sounded. I, I can go at the regular time. And the friend said, no, 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 I can go later. No, 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 let's go the time we said. <laughs> and they went back and forth and back and forth. Uh, they ended up sticking to the regular time. But it was all because of the meta message that was picked up by the first friend in the way the second friend chose words. I guess and okay, rather than sure, great. I'm wondering, and this is in reference to myself, I tend to have an incredible amount of intonation. And... Um, I'm very animated, and I think, and I hope that when I'm mo- mostly in person, but also on the radio, there's very little doubt about how I'm feeling about something, and I'm really very truthful to how I am and how I sound. What is that a reflection of, if anything? There's a t- term that I developed way, way, way back when I was it actually goes back to my doctoral dissertation. I identified two styles, although there's all kinds of things in between. I called one high-involvement style, and it sounds like that's what you're describing, and I called the other high-considerateness style. So to go back to the example of uh, interruption and overlap, in other words, are you just talking along to show enthusiasm, or are you starting to talk to take the floor? So high-involvement style is one where you, to be a good person, you want to really emphasize your involvement, your enthusiasm. So that might mean that you talk along to show interest. Maybe you stand closer. Maybe you tell more personal stories. And your intonation would vary more. And it's all part of showing that interest. And and by the way, in um, typed conversations, it might be lots of exclamation points, lots of caps to show enthusiasm repeating letters to show you're so sorry with lots of O's on the end of the word. So I think you got me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a high consideredness style would be where you spend much more emphasis not imposing on other people, showing that you're considerate. Leave longer pauses between turns. Probably speak at a lower volume. Leave lots of space between words as well as between turns so that you don't overwhelm people. Um, And that's where the indirectness might come in. Hmm. So they're both ways of being a good person, and they both work very well with people who share the style. But they they can cause a lot of confusion when you're talking to somebody of a different style. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yes. You might overwhelm someone by saying, oh, my God, yikes, wow. And they think they turn around to see what scared you. (laughs) But you were just responding to their stories, so they knew you were interested. My gosh, I might have to skip therapy this week. This is working well (laughs) for me. So I've read numerous books about women and their friendships. It happens to be something that I am also really interested in. Um, However, instead of instructing us on how do you do it, you focus on the why of it all, almost as if you're reporting. So tell me a little bit more about that approach. And maybe this comes from being a linguist and not a psychologist. My passion, my goal always is just to understand how do these conversations work. And when people are frustrated... What can we trace those frustrations to? Could it just be something about ways of using language and not something deeper that's wrong with the relationship? So in that way, I've always seen my my work as kind of healing. And people tell me, it's such a relief to know I'm not the only one. It's such a relief to have the pathology taken out of it. I'm not saying 
you're sick and this is my diagnosis. I'm saying this is all normal use of language, but because we have these different uses, they can sometimes trip us up. When you're talking about women's relationships, there's such a complexity here. They include childhood experiences, sometimes birth experiences, relationships between mother and daughter. And then you add on the factors about experiential by era and by age. Tell me more about how that would factor into your work. I always look for patterns of difference. It arises from the, um, from the observation itself that there are often differences by gender, by class, by age, by ethnicity, by culture, by region. These are the kinds of things that affect how we learn to use language. We pick it up from the people that we talked to growing up, and all those differences affect the way we hear language growing up. So, yeah, so those things are always there. So just take an example of gender. I mean, going back to the book, you just didn't understand one of the, quote, greatest hits from the book was the observation of of very common conversations where a woman might talk about a problem and the man quickly tells her how he thinks she might fix that problem. And she's frustrated and she might say, I really didn't want a solution, I just want to talk about it. And he might feel frustrated. Why do you want to talk about it if you don't want to do anything about it? (laughs) And I can trace that to a kind of conversational ritual called troubles talk. Very often women will talk about a problem And it isn't that we don't want advice ever. It's that we don't want a solution right off the bat. We want to talk about it for a while and just, you know, what did he say? And then what did you say? And what did that make you think? And why do you think he said that? And how did that make you feel? (laughs) Um, And all of that shows caring. The fact that somebody is interested in what happened to you makes you feel less alone in the world. And often you will end up with some kind of advice. Uh, And often the person will say, yeah, I know what you mean. The same thing happened to me and tell their story. And that all makes you feel a connection that can be very, very gratifying and and comforting. And that just seems to be a way that women tend to connect that is more common, that is more common among women than it is among men. And so you end up with this confusion when you try doing it with a man who doesn't. And obviously, as soon as I say women, men, I want to emphasize nothing is true of all women and men. In addition to our genders, we have the influences that I just listed, culture, region, ethnicity, all the others. And so obviously, no two women, no two men are exactly alike. But it does tend to be more common among women to engage in this kind of troubles talk, and more common among men to focus more on terms that I used in in the book, you just didn't understand, a kind of report talk. You focus on the impersonal information, and you create a sense of connection often by doing things together. You know, it would not be unusual for, say, couples, and the two women socialize, and the two men socialize, and one day the woman says to the man, isn't that terrible that they're getting divorced? And the man says, really? I didn't know that. They would play tennis, but they wouldn't talk about their personal relationships. And that would be not not unusual at all. All of these factors bubble up from the observations of how people are using language. 
I think you just identified my marriage. We're talking today with acclaimed author Deborah Tannen. Her latest book is You're the Only One I Can Tell Inside the Language of Women's Friendships. Let's go further about the differences in generations. Do you have set either expectations or conclusions you've made about millennials, Gen Y, X, baby boomers, seniors? I have not studied generations per se, but I have noticed significant differences, particularly in the use of new media, social media, because that's something that has become such a big part of many young people's lives. And so I'm saying young people, which is already too much of a generalization. There can be differences in two or three years. If I talk to my students who are 20, they will tell me how their 17-year-old siblings are using texting, and it's totally different. But generally, these use of uh, texting, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, which is pervasive in the lives of, of young people, by which I mean uh, middle school, high school, young adults, and is more like a foreign language, you might say, to some of us older people. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding there, too. And I'll just give you an example. I heard so often, and I I interviewed, by the way, over 80 women for this book. From many of the older women, I heard observations like, what is it with snapping all these pictures? Um, Who cares what somebody ate for dinner? All this information out there that nobody needs to know. In my view, snapping pictures, sending it to friends, posting it, It's really an extension of the how was your day conversations Mm. that girls and women value so much. You come home at the end of the day, you call a friend or you talk to somebody that you live with, and you say, what happened during the day? And I did this and I did that, and you wouldn't believe this thing that I saw, and it was really kind of funny. Well, you don't have to wait till the end of the day now. If you see something kind of funny, if the person was sitting next to you, you'd poke them and say, hey, look at that. So you're doing that in a virtual way, Hmm. taking the picture, sending it. Hey, look at that. So there's a sense of continual connection with the people you're close to, a feeling that you're kind of taking them along. And I think that's very odd uh, to many older people, but very second nature to the younger ones now. So how has that changed the nature of your work? Well, the courses that I teach now at Georgetown I teach courses on uh, social media. We call it discourse, the discourse analysis of social media. So this was, for me, just an extension of courses I developed years ago, the discourse analysis of conversation, because this is how conversations are now taking place. What would you guess would be the prognosis for this younger generation and their new way of talking with each other, how would you imagine the next 20 or 40 years would go, given the rapid pace of the social media and all of these technologies? Do you have any thoughts about that? I feel like the pressures and stresses are the same but more intense. When I talk to women about problems they had with friends, and it was the same thing, by the way, with problems with sisters and problems with mothers and daughters, if they told me about being hurt, the most frequent source of being hurt would be not being told something or not being included in something. That's where our sensitivities often lie. Uh, and and it, it's less, less so for, for boys and men. Well, all these social media make it easier for people to be included 
taking pictures where a person isn't then sending it to them, so they're virtually with you, they're included. On the other hand, it also ratchets up the fear of being left out. There's a Hmm. there's a expression that's often used, FOMO, fear of missing out. And so you might miss the party because you didn't check your phone in time. I talk about FOBLO, fear of being left out. You missed the party because you weren't invited. And the danger of seeing pictures of all the parties you weren't invited to on people's Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat messages, it is ratcheted up as well. So I think that's what people increasingly need to guard against, finding ways to manage all these in all this, these kinds of information coming in so that you can protect yourself a bit from these risks. And there's simply the, the problem of the amount of time that it takes. That's a big challenge. The time that it takes to keep up with to, your social media? To look at all the to, feeds yeah. of mm-hmm. your friends, sure. to constantly be checking out Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook and the time that it takes to send all these messages and read everybody else's messages. I heard from many people of all ages that friendships can be a burden. They take so much time, and we expect a lot of friends, too. I think it can become even more of a burden if you have to be informing everybody all the time of what's going on in your life, big and small, mm-hmm. because girls can be very hurt, as I said, and women if to not know what's going on in a friend's life. But you have other things you need to do in your life, too. So it's a challenge to find that balance. What are some of the basic premises or the conclusions that you've made about women in midlife? We are on a show for women over 40. What was your takeaway in this group? The older women get, for many women, the more important friendships with other women become. If they had children when they were young, of course, the kids took lots of time. And often their major main friendships were with mothers of children the same age. If they didn't have children, they might have been very busy with their careers or with work. Taking care of uh, parents, of course, is an issue at all ages, but maybe more in midlife. The ability to talk to other friends, to feel that other people understand what you're going through becomes especially important. And uh, quite a few women told me they reconnected in, after the kids were grown with friends from earlier times in their lives. And then if you want to get uh, old, to the ages where spouses begin passing away, and of course spouses, you can lose a spouse at any age or get really sick at any age, and then friends really become important. Um, more than one woman said to me, this is women in their 70s and 80s who had been widowed, Um, I don't think I could have gotten through my husband's death if it hadn't been for my women friends. Hmm. So there's a kind of companionship, a sense of being understood, a sense that there's somebody who cares, somebody that you can have that end-of-day conversation with. Uh, All of that becomes very important. I'm guessing that all of this analysis would force you to do some self-analysis and maybe even force you to confront your own assumptions about things and maybe even give you a better window into your own life. How often does the work you do touch you personally and how beneficial has it been for you? It has been extremely important and it has been about my personal life from the beginning. (laughs) I think it's a little bit the way novelists often start out. Their first novel is autobiographical. I told you about high involvement and high considerateness styles. That traced to a conversation that I recorded that uh, was a Thanksgiving 
dinner conversation that took place between my friends and me. I was a guest of that Thanksgiving dinner conversation. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I got my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. And I was always running into confusions where I felt that I was being misunderstood and I was misunderstanding others. And we all spoke English, so it wasn't about message. It was about meta-message, a feeling that I was somehow interrupting people when I never had been an interrupter in New York, in fact, quite the opposite. Getting the sense that people might have thought I was rude when I was so super polite. And I'll just give you a quick example, and it it quite um, expected if you're uh, in a department store in New York City, at least this was the case when I was growing up, you're, you're looking for the restroom, you want to ask somebody where it is, you don't see a service person who's free, so you can go up to someone who's serving another uh, customer, and you stand a little bit distant, kind of hover, so they know that you want to talk to them, but they know that you're not really interrupting. The service person will look up, She'll keep her body oriented to the customer, but she'll look up. You'll say, excuse me, sorry to bother you. Could you just tell me where the restroom is? And she'll say it's on the fourth floor and go back to her customer. When I tried doing that in California, the service person looked at me, stopped, broke the uh, service encounter, looked up at me and said, I'm helping this person now. When I'm done with her, I'll help you. (laughs) And I could hear that she thought I had been rude. I was horrified to think I could be perceived as rude when I knew I was doing something that was polite. And when you think about the logic of it, and this is always the case, that we always see the logic of our own styles. Other people's styles are often illogical. (laughs) How could she think I was interrupting when it takes so little time? It took her more time to chastise me than it would have been to just say fourth floor and we'd be done with it. So the question about the style differences, high involvement style versus high considerateness style, was describing what I was experiencing in my own life. Where do you see your work going for the next decade or so? What's the next challenge for you? I actually have, for a very long time, been intending to write a book about apologies because it's something that varies so much by culture, by gender, by the other influences, and something that seems so simple, such superficial words, but gets so deep in people's relationships, signs of whether others care, signs of relative power, trying to get one up on another person, trying to show you're connected to another person. So that's that's something that I'm really looking forward to doing in the future. And will that also talk about apologies by, say, region or dialect? Will you even get into something like that? Yes, um, uh, I would I would hope to get into all the ins and outs. There are certainly cultures where apologies are very frequent and very highly valued. Um, so many Asian cultures that would be true of. And our culture is one where we tend to avoid apologizing. Think, for example, having a car accident and insurance companies tell you don't apologize because you'll admit fault. <laughs> and sometimes the fact that a person will not apologize will drive someone to to the courts. Yes. Um, we know that if doctors apologize, the patients are less likely to sue, not more. What are you hoping your legacy will be? Um, first of all, it's very flattering for you to tell me I'll have a legacy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it would be awareness that psychology isn't the only thing going on. Linguistics is playing a role, too. That if people get 
a negative impression of another person or a sense of uh, something negative going on, they might stop and ask themselves, is there something about ways of speaking that's going on here? Could I approach this, maybe solve the problem, get along better, think better of other people by asking what was going on linguistically? This has been a really fascinating half hour. I see a lot of myself in the work that you're talking about, so I want to thank you so much. We've been talking with speaker, author, and professor Deborah Tannen about the complexities in women's relationships and a host of other topics. Deborah's latest book is You're the Only One I Can Tell, Inside the Language of Women's Friendships. Deborah can be found at DebraTannen, T-A-N-N-E-N.com. Thank you so much, Deborah, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm Sima Shapiro, your host of For Women Over 40 Conversations with Sima. Thanks to the listener for joining us today. And until next time, I hope you take care.